Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. Today we're going to explore a topic that, while not always fun to discuss, is critically important to you and your patients. To help us out, we're joined by Dr. Gerald Hickson. Dr. Hickson is one of the world's leading experts on medical malpractice risk and patient safety. In over 150 peer-reviewed articles and chapters, Dr. Hickson has explored questions such as, why do patients and families choose to file suit? Why do most malpractice claims originate from a very small number of physicians? Is there a link between physician behavior and patient outcomes? The last question is very interesting and is the focus of Dr. Hickson's most recent co-authored article recently published in JAMA Surgery. A quick background. Dr. Hickson is a pediatrician who served as Chief of Pediatric Outpatient Services at Vanderbilt. He currently serves as Senior Vice President of Quality, Safety, and Risk Prevention. He's the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Health Affairs and Chair of Medical Education Administration at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Hickson is also known for the development of the Patient Advocacy Reporting System, also known as PARS. This is a program that uses unsolicited patient complaint data to improve patient safety, and it's used in more than 70 hospitals and health systems nationwide. Also, just in case you were wondering, that's not a new guest host we have today. That's still Keith. He's just overcoming a little head cold, so bear with his voice. It's a little different than normal. This was a fascinating episode with numerous references to peer-reviewed data and research. We'll have all of it up for you in the show notes so you can explore for yourself later on. With that said, let's get started. Dr. Hickson, Jerry, welcome to the show. We're just really happy to have you today. Colin, I'm honored and uh, always uh, happy to engage in dialogue with good and thoughtful colleagues. Well, we are as well, and I I know our viewers are going to really enjoy this episode. Uh, I found out about you recently by looking at your recent article in JAMA Surgery, and this is a really interesting article. Uh, We talked a little bit uh, offline before. This was in the works for over 10 years, and you had a huge cohort of patients, I mean, I think over 32,000 that you analyzed. Jerry, just take us through the paper, but also what led up to this, what you were trying to find and what you actually did find. So Colin, we're interested in learning everything we can about how to encourage good, effective teamwork. And physicians, surgeons are critical team members, but so are others, and also patients and families. And so we did a study that we published back in the early 90s looking at trying to understand why a small subset of physicians, about 2 to 8% by discipline, account for 75% or more of MedMal-related cost. And so at that time, we did a first study, which was to try to understand, gain some insight. And what we found at that time was that patients and families, their unsolicited patient complaints, their observations that get reported to practices, to hospitals, if recorded and analyzed, could be reliably used to identify those physicians that had more risk than others. The challenge was, uh, the assertion at that time was, if you make patients and families unhappy, that they're more likely to sue you. Well, that makes sense, but was not completely satisfying. And so, as we've thought about it, the question we had was, you know, physicians who model disrespect for other humans, do they take those same characteristics into the surgical theater? Do do those behaviors influence the ability of other team members in that surgical suite to perform? And so we'd been waiting until we had sufficient partners, and one of the things that we were able to take advantage of in this study was partnerships with some great institutions, over 800 surgeons, Uh, performing more than 32,000 surgical procedures so that we could look at how patients and families viewed those particular surgeons. And then we could examine uh, the outcomes of care of those 32,000 cases to give us some insight about whether there was an impact or not. And the answer is there's a big impact. So just to start with, I mean, that is a huge, well, it's multiple data sets put together from all these different institutions. Um, I've also understand you have something called the PARS program at Vanderbilt. Just take a step back for a moment. What exactly is an unsolicited patient observation? How is that different than something where maybe there's a call around survey? What is an unsolicited observation and what is it not? 
You know, Colin, in a sense, if uh, you uh, go to a fine restaurant and you anticipate a good meal and the food is sorry at best, how often do you actually seek to share your observation directly with a representative of that establishment? We know the literature suggests that we hear about one complaint for every 10 to 20 such circumstances. So we looked, and in medicine, we've been very interested in how often people will actually share with an organization, either through a letter or raising a concern formally to a representative of the institution. Many organizations, thankfully, have individuals that are patient relations experts who are there to listen, to record those observations, to do service recovery. Now, service recovery is that process of trying to make right what patients and families perceive, and I want to use that word, perceive is wrong. And then uh, what we learned is that we could take those stories and look at whether they fell randomly or non-randomly. And again, as I implied earlier, those complaints are non-randomly distributed. So those offerings of observations, we know that half of physicians in any practice setting for a four to six year audit period get no complaints at all of that nature. We also know that 5% of physicians account for 35% of those complaints and those complaints have appropriately coded and aggregated reliably identify those physicians at two to eight percent by discipline that have extraordinary care. So what we learned to do is that we learned to take those unsolicited observations, code them, categorize and identify those at-risk physicians, and now we have about 50,000 physicians a year that we perform such analysis on in 144 separate institutions, and we routinely share data back with those physicians with the notion of giving them an opportunity to pause and reflect how they're being viewed by others. And this is, I assume, anonymized to protect the identities of the surgeons involved. So the study that we did was, but in direct operation here at Vanderbilt and at other institutions, we establish in partnership a committee of professionals who are committed as peers to take the data that shows that a particular physician, for whatever reason, stands out, to go knocking on their door and in great respect and confidence share their data, showing them where they stand, also where they stand with respect to the other 50,000 physicians in the database and showing them specifically where they stand in relationship to other individuals in their same specialty. And what we found is that physicians often have never considered, they've not had someone present data to them in exactly this way. And one of the things that we know maximizes the chance that I will pause. And what we want people to do is simply pause and reflect why it is we then find that physicians are incredible problem solvers. And in a, patient, uh, in a paper we published just a few years ago, we know that just under 80% of those high-risk physicians will respond to that intervention. That's this PARS program. And the recidivism rate, the chance that they backslide, is less than 4%. Well, that's now, really also, interesting. It's fascinating to us because when we started this study, uh, my boss at the time told me there was no way in the world that individuals would respond to such a wimpy intervention. But my notion has always been we're dealing with very bright individuals that often get into practice patterns. And remember, it may be them. It may be the practice that they're in because often we don't see our own practice the way patients and families do. And at least a third of the time, the solution is the physician goes back into their own practice and makes changes in their operations. We don't care what the reason is as long as the professional is committed to reflect why. And again, the good news is that 80% of those high-risk physicians respond. And we also know that they reduce their med-mal risk by 50%. It's all good. Patients get better experience. Claims are reduced, but it left the question unanswered whether or not it was just this issue that I caused distress for families or whether my behavior and performance some way also increases the number of bad outcomes. And that was the purpose of this study. So what did you find when you went through all this? What was the relationship and um, 
Well, I already know the answer because I read the paper, but take us through <laughs> what you actually found here. So, Colin, one of the things that we wanted to do is be very careful with the study design. Because if you think about it, if you go uh, to me as a surgeon, of course, that would be bad not being a surgeon. But uh, if uh, I was a surgeon and you came to me and you wound up with a surgical site infection, obviously a subset of individuals who would develop that kind of infection would be unhappy and therefore more likely to complain. And we previously published studies that show that if a patient has a bad outcome, they are more likely to complain. So we created a study design in which we looked at a target surgical procedure and we took advantage of the National Surgical Quality Indicator Project, NISQIP. So we took those targets surgeries, but we only looked at the surgeon's complaints for two years prior to the target case to avoid that sort of contaminating effect. And we were also, because of the great power of the NISQIP program, able to uh, control for a host of patient variables and case variables that would likely confuse the results. So at the end of the day, we were able to get a good look isolating down on how often these patient, these surgeons are perceived as disrespectful or rude to other humans. And the study showed that there was just under a 14% difference in the avoidable outcomes of those surgeons perceived as disrespectful. Stated in another way, in the 32,000 surgical procedures, we found over 400 additional surgical site infections, metabolic derangements, pneumonias, urinary tract infections. In fact, every complication we looked for, we found a difference between those surgeons perceived as disrespectful and those that were perceived as most respectful. And if you were to take those data and apply those numbers nationally, it would amount to over 400,000 potentially avoidable outcomes with a cost of about $3.5 billion, something that you don't want to experience, I don't want to experience, the surgeons don't want their patients to experience, but without pausing and reflecting, they just often think that that surgical site infection is just simply a cost of having surgery. That's a, a fascinating correlation. Um, what do you think causes it? I know we're getting beyond sort of the the data. Why is it that rudeness on the patient, sorry, on the doctor's part leads to complications on uh, with regards to the patients. It's not like he's surgeon is being rude to the wound or rude to the surgery. Um, what kinds of things do you think, uh, factors do you think are involved with the complication rate? Well, you know, Keith, I'm a pediatrician and I always go back to the pediatric literature for any real truth. Now, that's a humorous now, but I know that you have some <laughs> relationship to children. There was a paper published in Pediatrics two years ago that looked at rudeness in an NICU. And it was fascinating because what they did is to look at how others will respond after having received that rudeness. And so when you think about the critical role of other team members, if I've been rude to you and you are the anesthesiologist or you are a circulator, you have some other role within that surgical theater. What does that do to your willingness to speak up when you want help or may need help, your willingness to offer observations? And I think more importantly, this whole notion of situational awareness. So if I am working with you in the OR, am I really have to, am I having to spend some of my attention to focus on you and when you may treat me in less than a professional way? Or am I really focusing on the surgical field, my task, other duties? Am I speaking up quickly enough that individuals can intervene in a time frame where it makes sense? And so when you think about those issues, I think there's plenty of literature about team performance. Now, it isn't to say that occasionally, you know, medicine's inherently stressful. We will all on occasion uh, throw spit or cuss. I mean, that's the nature of life. But the question is, is this a pattern that goes on and on and on? Or is this a one-time occurrence where the rest of the team can, through heroic rescue, step up to the plate at that particular moment and respond to a particularly uh, uh, challenging situation? But if this occurs day in and day out, that staff is already conditioned not to perform well when someone walks in the door. Well, we've we've found um, as well that uh, that there are so many there's so much noise in a practice, and that affects 
um, what goes on. It affects patient care. It also affects care of the staff. Do you think part of the factor, too, uh, is that that a surgeon takes so, puts so much energy into being rude that he or she takes uh, his or her eye off the ball and just isn't performing as well? They're just putting so much energy into their anger? You know, Keith, it's uh, when we look at 100 physicians that stand out in terms of being reported as being disrespectful and rude. I think we find a lot of different reasons. I think some individuals walk into certain cultures and it's simply tolerated and uh, there's never any feedback and that just becomes the way of life in that particular unit. I think other circumstances occur. I often recognize that uh, when I had my first 16-year-olds in my household, I was uh, not quite as pleasant a human uh, as I might otherwise be. So it's both how I perform and behave, but it's also those external pressures. But all of these things come to bear. And at the end of the day, as professionals, as as we're committed to the best outcomes possible, I want to be sure that the surgeon has great technical and cognitive skills. But I also want to be sure that we're pausing to reflect, are the rest of the team members also able to do their job? Are they functioning at the highest level possible? And certainly, if I'm going to have a procedure, that's what I want within that surgical suite. So we're probably stepping away from your paper for a moment, then we're going to come back. But when I'm thinking about the surgeon with their team, one thing that's become more and more popular in the business world is the 360 review or analysis. And for our viewers who aren't familiar with this, the idea is you take the people you report to, your supervisors, um, could be up to the chief medical officer, uh, the people that you work with, your circulating nurse, your scrub techs, the people in your practice, and you ask all of them to take a moment to answer upwards of maybe even 100 questions. It's actually a pretty big time commitment. Everything about your leadership style, your communication, whether you come on time to clinic in the morning, you name it, it's, it's all on there. And we all have certain perceptions that we feel people see us as, or certain ideas. You know, People think I'm a good leader. People think I'm good at communicating. And the reason these things have become popular is not so you can take all of your preconceptions and just go ahead and validate them. It's quite the opposite. You come in and you find out, gosh, I didn't know people thought this about me. I didn't know that I was doing this and it was really causing this much problem. Just coming in 10 minutes late to clinic, for example, disrupts the entire day. So coming back to the paper in a moment, but you've done a lot of research on this. What have you learned in doing research with surgical teams and with clinicians and the teams around them and getting feedback from those staff and then Give us an idea of some of the surprises that some doctors have found when they are presented with this, this data. So, Colin, a great question. And, you know, I, I think that as professionals, we need to constantly be seeking feedback about our performance. And it can occur in lots of different ways. I mean, certainly now that there's so many publicly reported metrics, it's coming. But I think also this notion you raise of seeking out people's opinions. I think the most important thing we ever do is make it very clear to those individuals that work with us that we want to hear from them. But remember, again, I'm a pediatrician and I want to hear early and often. And so part of the challenge has been is that we often don't share for a host of different reasons. There's asymmetry in relationships. Uh, Sometimes uh, I'm not uh, the easiest person to share information with, but I think we have to set the standard as professionals to say we want to hear And then when individuals do have the courage to speak up in the moment, because that's the key, that we accept that, we're able to take advantage of that, and it promotes the fact that we as professionals need to be self-reflective. Number two, second issue here, we have, uh, this study is about patient complaints. We also are doing a series of studies with staff complaints. Now, frankly, we did not start this research until I got within view of my retirement age because uh, uh, you can deal with patient complaints, but when you start dealing with staff complaints, it there are a lot of myths out there. But in a paper we published this last year, we know that uh, 90% of staff members don't, uh, 90% of physicians don't get any staff reports in any three-year audit period. We know that uh, 2.5% of physicians account for over 50% of staff reports. This is another very important source of information. 
And as tough as it is for patients to speak up and have that complaint captured and lodged, I think it's much more difficult for a staff member to report because of those small teams and fear. So one of the values of a 360 is it sort of forces those activities, those data being collected. The challenge is that uh, it's still difficult to get people to really trust that they're anonymous. And so our notion is let's take advantage of patient and family complaints. Let's encourage staff members to be able to report. Uh, And what we're finding at our institution and many more where we're doing this work is that staff increasingly become willing to report and not anonymously because they begin to trust that the organization really will stand behind them and really will protect them when they do report in good faith. So I think that getting feedback is good. I'm not always happy with the feedback I get. Now you asked me about some of the stories. When we started the PARS intervention program, I remember a particular very distinguished Vanderbilt faculty member, senior leader, just professional of professionals, and he was on our peer messenger committee, and he went out and delivered a peer intervention folder to a uh, surgical specialist, and uh, after looking at the data for a second or two, he um, is the he reported to me the surgeon took the folder and threw it across the room and invited uh, this uh, very distinguished individual to leave his office and uh, the peer messenger called me up and he said I think we failed and I remember asking him well did the folder remain in the office or did it get thrown out in the hallway and he said well it remained in the office I said message delivered (laughs) now What was important in that particular case is that that particular individual completely turned it around. And so one of the things that has surprised me is that it doesn't really matter. In fact, we've actually asked, can the peer messenger actually predict whether or not the individual that's the recipient of the bad data, not really bad data, just reflective data, can you predict how they're going to respond? And the answer is you cannot. So individuals can be defensive, they can respond in any different way. The key issue is that people will respond if the organization has the courage and willingness to deliver the data. All right. Well, we are always looking for practical advice in this show. And if one of our viewers is sitting here listening and they hear this number, 90% of physicians don't get staff reports. And they're thinking, well, actually, I'm in that number. Um, I have. N- I think I know what my, my team thinks about me, but okay, I could be wrong. I mean, I think back to residency, I thought I had an idea of myself then, and my, attendin- my attendings corrected that almost every moment of every day. <laughs> so I'm going to give this a shot. Would Jerry, based on your experience, would you recommend trying something like this on your own, in your own practice, assuming you can, instead of waiting for the organization to do it? Is that a good idea? Are there risks involved in that um, if it's not done properly? And... Um, what else can a physician do to get a better idea right now instead of having to wait for the organization to, to take the lead, especially if they're not a big academic institution like Vanderbilt? So let me tell you that uh, first, we've done this work at institutions with as few as four beds to as many as a thousand hospital beds. So at the end of the day, it's doable if there's leadership commitment. Second issue is that I think that uh, I want to call out the fact that the vast majority of professionals are professionals. So again, we're talking about 5% of physicians who get too many patient complaints. We're talking about 2.5% of physicians who get too many staff reports. So I don't want to lose the big picture. And the big picture is that 80 to 85% of all professionals are professional in the fullest sense. That's important for us to think about what it really means to be a professional. So certainly Keith's got cognitive and technical competence. I trust that. But we understand that real professionalism means certain behavioral attributes that people model or don't. And that's a commitment to clear and effective communication, that if something's going on in the surgical procedure, I want to hear. I appreciate it. Please speak up. And when they do, they are not embarrassed or humiliated in any intended or unintended way that there is a pre-brief, there is a post-brief. How did we we do today? Uh, I think those issues are incredibly important about sending the message that we want to hear and affirming even if we don't agree with the question or if we think the question is trivial. 
The other issue I think it's important is this whole notion of availability, and you mentioned it about the start of OR times. I mean, people who are chronically late don't understand how later cases get pushed, increasing the probability of slips and lapses in those surgical procedures. So their particular case may roll along perfectly fine, but if I'm the fourth or fifth patient in the day, is that team going to be able to function because someone has respected the start time? I think it's also this notion of how often, and this is advice I think is very important, that physicians, whoever they are, will pause and ask themselves regularly, do I make it easier or harder for other team members to do their job? So at the end of the day, when I walk into the surgical theater, are people pleased? Because not that I'm warm and fuzzy. This is not about being warm and fuzzy. This is about being respectful to others. And you can do it as someone who's relatively cold, or you can do it as someone who's warm and fuzzy. So it isn't about warm and fuzzy. It's about do I respect the other humans in this room? And when you model that, that is probably the single most important thing we can do from a safety standpoint. So there's a lot of initial steps you can take even before trying to launch your own 360. It's just a matter of just asking some basic questions of your team members and perhaps being a little bit more observant, right? That's the challenge. And so, you know, again, the notion is that 80% of the individuals who will hear this don't really need to hear these messages. The challenge is that we all assume we're in that 80%. And until we begin to get organized feedback delivered by peers not administrators, not risk managers, not nurses, but by peers. That's what's powerful, and that's the thing that we found helps individuals pause and reflect, and that's what this, in the end of the day, is about. Absolutely. Some of the pushback, I'm sure, to this is the fact that um, you're always suspicious when somebody comes and says, oh, well, we've got this file of your behavior, and then your your immediate thought, and I speak from just being a surgeon, your immediate thought is, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to push me out? Are they trying to do something that's going to be a problem? What kinds of things has has Vanderbilt done and other organizations done to make it less threatening to the the providers involved? Uh, Keith, this is a really important issue because at the end of the day, it's about ownership of a professional responsibility. And that responsibility is the responsibility of self and group regulation. We talk about professionalism in all of its different forms, but real professionalism occurs when you are willing to take a story and come to my office and in a non-judgmental, respectful way, share that information with me. So when you think about how you roll this out, number one, it's got to be rolled out by physicians. This is, a pro- this is a process of physicians in support of physicians. The committees that are set up, the language around those committees, these are professionalism committees. These are individuals who are selected, who are respected by others, again, who can keep their mouth shut, maintain confidentiality, can go deliver information. I think there is a requirement of transparency. You know, individuals always worry if they don't know exactly how data is going to be used. So before you start collecting data, Keith, I want to know how you're going to use it. So if a staff report comes in about me, uh, does it get delivered to me? And if a second one gets delivered to me, do I still just get a cup of coffee? When does it escalate? When does it begin? I mean, just simply understanding the rules of the game. And so those are the sorts of things that we find reduce the natural concern and fear that sometimes occurs. So transparency, getting people to understand the rules in advance, having the process run by physicians for physicians. And Keith, one of the byproducts of this is that our distinguished nursing colleagues here at Vanderbilt after several years came to us and said, gosh, we want the same equivalent program. And our response is, what a good idea. And so at the end of the day, it's never before it's time. Have you been able to see an improvement in um, the numbers simply by the fact that these that this program exists? I would think if uh, if the providers knew that they're being watched, knew that the measurement is out there, knows that this peer committee is present, that they will say, "Oh, 
all of a sudden, I better be really careful about this. I better be more mindful of what my citizenship or, or my professionalism is. So, Keith, part of this is also the Hawthorne effect. I mean, there's no question about that. And so that simply is acknowledged. Uh, in our study design, when we first did this work back uh, nearly 20 years ago, individuals were blinded because of the potential effect. Now that it's a part of operations, no, we're not blinded. We don't share anybody's name. But what we do is regularly we have a responsibility to show people results. And so at the end of the day, I can't tell you that it's working and say, but I can't tell you the data that supports that. We have to be willing to go out there and show the different ways that the effects are seen. So in our environment, we routinely, to the medical center, medical board, to departments, to other practices, make de-identified data available with a human to go out and answer the obvious questions. I mean, that's a part of that transparency. In addition, uh, we've had tremendous impact upon our claims experience here at Vanderbilt and uh, other sites nationally where we've done this work because at the end of the day, uh, if we can identify these high-risk positions, it makes little sense if we can't also show an impact on their claims experience, and that's a part of that data transparency. But one of the things, Keith, we've now learned to do is to use this same stepwise process to share about any performance data. We had a great project here at Vanderbilt where we reduced uh, the number of uh, surgical site infections in our colorectal team, and we did it because we took this same sort of stepwise approach, uh, created standard care. It was owned by that group, and their results are phenomenal. So it is a way that physicians say, look, we've got an opportunity here. We can collect some data. We got leadership commitment. Let's get working, but let's be sure we're sharing observations. And I know some people are going to be worried. Our insurance companies, our lawyers, are other people going to get their hands on this data? And there's obviously other third-party companies out there who would like to use this for other purposes. Um, a big question a lot of patients have is, which surgeon should I go to? Who should I put my child, you know, whose hands should I put my child in? And this could be very useful data for a patient. It, it may not be. It, it depends how it's, how it's disseminated. But how would you address those concerns? Because I know some of our viewers are, are thinking about that right now. So, Colin, this is a really important question and one of the areas where there's often a little tension and should be. And so we've taken an approach that we are going to be confidential in these data. We, the goal of the effort is to give the professional an opportunity to have their own awareness and to respond. And because we know 80% of the time they will, we have very great confidence in the process. The challenge with that is that if we use these data to publicly shame and blame, it absolutely destroys the opportunity for people to pause and reflect. And so one of the things that we are in this age of lots of electronic data. We have many of the vendors of satisfaction metrics wanting to post people's complaints online. You know, on the one hand, maybe there is a short-term effect, but we're interested in creating a sustainable process driven by professionals. Now, we need to be held accountable that if individuals are unable or unwilling to respond to the intervention, there must be consequences which include uh, public recognition of an individual that is not responsive and perhaps a question about their ability to continue practice within this environment. But just to post stuff out there on the World Wide Web to embarrass and humiliate is not consistent with how professionals self-regulate or group regulate. And so we do not make our data available except internally, but we drive a very defined process so that when we start with that first cup of coffee, we anticipate it's going to work. When we go to the next level of an awareness intervention, when Keith appears to have accumulated what appears to be a pattern, now listen to my passive language, we're going to give Keith an opportunity to reflect on those data. Keith may be identified by random chance. It may be real, but we trust that he's going to be reflective. And then if he's not reflective, and again, I told you 80% respond, 20 do not, we have to be prepared as a medical group with a plan B. And over the years and almost 2,000 interventions that we've done nationally on individuals that didn't respond, uh, I mean, uh, who got identified, 
of that group, the 20% that did not respond, we find that about half that group, when they are directed to an intervention, and that's the time in which this becomes more public, it's time to ensure that Keith gets the right evaluation that he may need. And over these uh, 15 years or so of this work, we've identified individuals with CNS lesions, physicians that were otherwise not suspected. We've identified now a group of individuals that have evidence of early cognitive dysfunction, Alzheimer's, patients and families see and report things. We just haven't always done a good job of putting it together in a usable form. That's why I feel so strongly that this has to be driven locally, because when you start with that first intervention, you do not know what you're going to find. Now, in this intervention process, especially if we're talking about a community hospital Sometimes there's big heavy hitters out there. They're big money generators for the hospital. We all know who these are. And there's a perception and sometimes a reality that they get away with things because they're bringing in so much money for the hospital. They have such a huge referral draw. And sometimes, and we've talked about this on this program, uh, hospitals will choose or practices to look at more asymmetrical techniques to deal with this. Maybe have a PA who follows that surgeon around and kind of apologizes to the patients after they've been, uh, you know, uh, um, brushed off. Um, maybe you have a, a really nice nurse in there who just knows how to manage, you know, a little bit of follow-up from the uh, path of destruction that he's leaving behind. But how would you deal with some of these surgeons who are clearly very valuable to the hospital, clearly could take their business elsewhere and have a little bit of leverage when they come in? So, Colin, this is a real issue, and there are lots of different ways that individuals get specialty status or special status. Uh, it may be RVU production. It may be that they're the only individual who does X within a region. I, I'm very sympathetic to leaders of health systems who will face those challenges. But one of the things that our center has learned is that our partnership with them is really dependent upon a process of introduction in which we ask these questions routinely. If, in fact, Keith, who is your biggest RVU producer, gets identified in the process, are you willing to deliver the data? And if Keith doesn't respond, are you willing to escalate the level of intervention? And if he is unable or unwilling to respond, uh, are you willing to entertain that Keith may not be a good team member? And what we find is that about a third of the groups that come knocking on our door are not ready to do that. And it's not fair to them. It's not fair to their physicians. It's not fair to their peers. It's not fair to anyone if there is a unwillingness to begin with to address everyone within the environment. And so this really becomes a challenge. And there are health facilities out there that will not touch something of this nature with a 10-foot pole. There are others that are on the other side of that spectrum that just simply uh, are on a mission to address the keys of this world. That's also a destructive force because what you want are just reasonable, thoughtful individuals that oversee a process and they would be willing to either deliver data or receive data understanding that the purpose of the program is to bring an opportunity for Keith to pause and reflect but there are lots of organizations out there that have a few individuals with special status, and it becomes clear very quickly, and everybody in the environment know who those individuals are, and a part of our due diligence and partnership. And all of these organizations that we work with within this study, they understand that this is a process that has to be applied to every team member regardless. Well, what resources does, <clears throat> excuse me, does Vanderbilt provide uh, for those people who are uh, who get the the initial intervention, um, you say, okay, uh, let's let me pause. Um, it's not just pausing; it's also uh, let's let me look at my operation. Let's look at let me look at my systems. What kinds of things are in place that will make me better? So, Keith, one of the things that was an interesting question about the research study is that as we debated the start of this back 15, 16 years ago, was how much did we need to provide the individual that had been identified? And obviously one possibility is that we provided them a laundry list of different services that existed within the environment and the other possibilities we didn't deliver anything at all. We actually chose the latter. 
because we're dealing with very bright, insightful individuals, and the results speak for themselves now, the fact that 80% will respond with these initial engagements without having to give them lots of additional services. Now, what they are likely to do in many circumstances are to seek those things out on their own. We found many who actually went to patient relations on their own, not mandated, not directed, and said, you know, would you come to my practice and follow me around a bit? Give me some feedback. But it's always this issue about whether you're ready for that feedback or not. And the process of intervention now, I think, increases the probability that those messages from someone who is just a very good patient relations specialist, they're sufficient to have an effect. Now, as you go up the pyramid that we use for interventions, uh, even at awareness, we find that they need very little else. We coach the peers to be able to remind them of services that exist within the environment, whether it's related to organizational scheduling or handling phone calls or things of that nature. I mean, those services exist. But the real question comes when someone is unwilling or unable to respond to the intervention. And at that particular point, what we have found at our institution is that that's where you need physician wellness, those services with individuals that have skills in dealing with individuals that may have a host of medical or mental health related issues. But remember now, we're talking about less than 1% of the physician population. But in those circumstances, that's where we found individuals that have significant medical illness or mental illness or other life stressors that need professional assistance. And so again, don't go down this pathway unless there's a commitment to provide the access to the kinds of resources that a human may need when they have gotten off the pathway. Out of curiosity, looking at the data, was there any way to determine which of the doctors had received messages directly from the patients? Because if they're improving when they, see, when they get the folder... Um, it, it stands to reason that if the patients had given them the, that feedback uh, at the beginning, they might have not had to be in this process at all. So, Keith, I think that's a great question, and the answer to that is no, we had no way to really answer that question given the limitations of how we did the study. I think that uh, patients are often willing to speak up to the 80%. They are less willing to respond to that 20%, but you know, that becomes a very important question. And the other issue, let me just touch on because it always comes up, there are unreasonable patients and families. And so one of the things that our work is about is not just rolling over and agreeing to everything that a patient wants. As a pediatrician, uh, many times the parents were there in the room with the child and grandmother was at home and was determined that the child needed antibiotics for a ear infection. We all face those circumstances in which there are demands. And this is not the issue to offer those antibiotics, but it is to say that there are ways that we share in a respectful way. Keith, I hear you. I've examined your child. My best recommendation is as follows. So I think that that's a part of it as well. Uh, and so understand that there are unreasonable patients and families, but when a particular physician winds up in that 5% where they have multiple times as many complaints as others. They're not just unlucky from a patient draw. There may be something else they need to think about. All right, Jerry, we got to talk about everybody's favorite subject, the online doctor review sites. <laughs> we know everybody loves them. Um, this is not, of course, the same thing as what you have done here with the PAR system um, or the quality index. It's it's random, it's anonymous, and um, sometimes it can be very destructive to a person's reputation. And there's been numerous studies on this uh, questioning the, you know, the value of this whatsoever for the patient or, or the physician. Give us your thoughts on that. And assuming what I think you think about it and the difference is, what could be improved there? Is there ever a chance that these could have value? So I'm not a big fan uh, and one of the reasons that I'm not a big fan is the fact that we found that if we get these observations, but get them in a usable way so I can provide them back in feedback, I have a chance to change things. 
And so one of our assertions are that, you know, patients and families this day and age, they're going to post things online. So if individuals are going to post things online and because we don't have any control and some of those reports are in fact very destructive and wrong, my notion is let's be sure within our practices, within our hospitals, all of our facilities, that we make it very clear that we want to hear from you. And so our messaging is that if we fail to meet or exceed your expectations, here's a phone number, here is a process, we train our managers within our practices here to be sure that we're not defensive when a patient and family has something to say, but that we take it seriously. In fact, we mandate service recovery training for all of our team members because our notion is that if we identify and deal with issues in real time, it decreases the probability that individuals are going to go out there and post online. That we can do in a proactive way. And then because we know how to use those complaints, we know how to separate the wheat from the chaff, we can feed them back to reduce the probability that they occur in the future. My notion is that the online reporting is one of those after-the-fact phenomenon. It is going to happen. We can be unhappy about it. I can go back and look at what people have said about me and my practice of medicine, and some of them I agree with and some I don't. My notion is let's get out in front of this. And the way to do it, number one, is to remember the 50% of physicians who don't get any patient complaints ever, to remember those that don't get staff complaints, model those behaviors, feed the data back you have, have a robust service recovery program that's not defensive, do it for real, and then effectively as fellow professionals, share and hold accountable your colleagues who, for whatever reason, don't seem to get it. So if I'm the VP of marketing at Vanderbilt and I'm coming to you and I say, Dr. Hickson, I, 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 I love what you're doing here and I think we should use this. I think more patients should know about what we're doing. What would you feel about publicizing some of these results? Um, how much information would, would, be, would you be able to share with the public? And basically just providing a better place for patients to go besides health grades or one of these other websites. So part of this is I don't have a very good answer for you. And so let me just label that out in front. But what I would say is that, again, I would reiterate what I just shared about the notion of being out front. I would make it very clear on all of our websites as we do, including our patient portal, that if there are complaints, we want to hear from people. So I think that needs to be declared explicitly. We also, as an organization, post uh, our satisfaction metrics online. We do that. I think that that is just part and parcel of the world that we live in, and that's fine. And uh, I may not think that we're taking full advantage of that of those data, but again, uh, part of this is understanding that it is a issue of collective wisdom, but it needs to be out there. I don't like the posted comments. Uh, because, again, once they're out there, they stay out there. And we have some pretty choice ones here uh, at Vandy over the years. And, again, I see the effect on the professional. But I don't want to forget as well that patients and families often suffer in silence as well. So there is a balance, and I don't want to forget that balance. And so we don't look at it just as physicians or just as administrators or just as patients. And so, again, uh, it's not a very satisfying answer, but it's the answer I'm giving you. No, that's okay. And maybe I'm just thinking out loud here, but I know with um, companies I've worked with and still do, uh, Gallup is used to do assessments of employees and the distributors and whomever else in the company. I wonder if a third party like Gallup could be employed here to come into a hospital and take charge of this so it's not, okay, well, Vanderbilt collected their own data. I mean, of course, yep. they're going to make themselves look good. It's, well, Gallup did this, and Gallup collected all the 32,000 patient unsolicited reviews. They, they compiled this data, and they are going to publicize it based on these different institutions. I wonder, and again, I'm just thinking out loud, but I wonder if maybe that's what's coming down the road, because these are useful tools for patients, and what they have access to right now really isn't. So, Colin, I think you, you're making a very important point, and part of this is the integrity of how you handle the data. So I think that's a really big issue, and the question is, how are data gained? Number two, 
The second issue is that there is value of national groups that hold the data and process the data in the same standardized way. And so for the other 143 sites where we use our PARS program, we serve that function. For the one, Vandy, we do not. But we have found that that's very beneficial because the other thing that's very valuable is the peer-based comparison. But again, remember, I'm thinking about what maximizes my ability to get an orthopedic surgeon to understand that they stand out. I'll never forget this in a uh, undisclosed location where we identified a spine surgeon and spine surgeon stood out, had lots of complaints. It's always got to be spine, doesn't it, Keith? Yeah, well, you know, and I'm, just, I'm using that as an example. But, you know, it, and the response, well, all of my patients complain. You know, they come in, they're uncomfortable, and, and it is a problem. Well, the nice thing about it is that we could then create a curve to show the individual and where they stood in relationship to all other 1,100 orthopedic surgeons within our database. And then the response was, well, but I'm a spine surgeon. You can't compare me with other orthopedic surgeons. And so at that point, we went into the database and pulled out 80 spine surgeons and showed that this individual had the uh, highest score of any spine surgeon in that database. So there is great value because the goal of the process is not to play gotcha. The goal is to get that spine surgeon to pause at some point and say, gosh, maybe it is possible that as difficult and challenging as these patients may be, others seem to handle this without the inflammation that's associated with my practice. Have you thought about lifting this from the institutional level to the organizational level? Have you had talks with American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons or some of the other organizations? So we have opportunities to have that dialogue routinely, Keith. And one of the things that we found specifically with uh, orthopedic surgeons is that we had a very bright and thoughtful orthopedic group that we deal with now and been dealing with for a number of years that said, gosh, we are scattered in 17 distinct geographic locations and can we create a virtual system. And we've had great success with that. And we've done that now with otolaryngology, with orthopedic surgery, with other large health systems that are spread out over multiple states. And that just adds power to the comparison and allows standardization in terms of dealing effectively with patients and families. So we've done that. uh, And certainly, uh, we have lots of opportunities to provide education sessions and things like that at national meetings. But you find that professionals are very clever. They're thoughtful. They begin to see the utility. Some of the work we're doing now is that we've talked today about the individual. But one of the things that we also observe is what we call a family effect. And that means when an entire group is out here off the page. And then the question is why? And so we find great effect in comparing the performance of various emergency departments and other sorts of things where, uh, yes, there's a lot of complaining that occurs in emergency medicine, but there's huge variation among practices. And then what we find is that thoughtful leaders in those sites sort of begin to, as we say, bond with the data to reflect why it is that the circumstances here appear to be not exactly where we'd like them to be. And again, it's all about self-correction and reflection. So we've talked a lot about physicians here and surgeons, but there's also another group in hospitals and that's hospital administration. Could these tools and have these tools been used to reflect on their performance and to observe what, well, physicians, for example, think of the people who run their hospitals? Um, are administrators open to this, and have they been willing, in your experience, to share that uh, those findings with the people under them? So our observations have been that, you know, you get thoughtful. What's thoughtful leadership? Thoughtful leadership is a recognition that real medical leadership involves individuals with lots of different specialties, nurses, physicians, administrators, finance, all of that together in a single place where individuals are willing to look at their data together. 
So I think a willingness to look at data together is probably the most important thing. You know, we don't have enough complaints about hospital administrators, but I do think it's very important that leaders of health systems or practices do environmental scans periodically. You know, it's got to be a two-way street. And so one of the things that we often find is that because our center does a lot of work in what is labeled as disruptive behavior, we don't use that terminology. But they want us to deal with those behaviors. But, you know, medicine is a balance. It's a balance between intentionally designed systems and human accountability. And so the question we always ask leaders, are you willing to look at your dysfunctional systems? Are you willing to fix things that constantly create difficulty for physicians doing the right thing. Now, if you're willing, we'll come in and partner with your fellow physician leaders to work on professional accountability, but you can't ask for professional accountability unless you have administrative accountability around fixing dysfunctional and faulty systems. So I think that sort of partnership is critical. And maybe even starting there, if you're trying to sell this program to your team, to the people at the hospital, you're willing to go in first, right? You got to be honest. And, uh, you know, the notion is uh, we often uh, get leaders in a room together and we ask those questions and uh, see how they're going to respond. Let's talk about patients for a moment. And, And Jerry, we're coming close to the time here. So maybe just a couple more questions. We'll wrap it up. Does that sound good? Fine with me. Great. Let's, uh, let's talk about the patients. So this was again, a huge, um, retrospective analysis of over 32,000 patient complaints and, and observations, depending on how you call it. Um, what have you learned about patients? Are there patients out there who are more likely to sue a physician? Are there patients out there who fit into these categories we talked about who want antibiotics for every single thing that their kid comes in for, or who will be completely unsatisfied with their care unless they have um, enough hydrocodone to knock out an elephant, right? <laughs> you know, we all know there's patients that are out there. And have you identified those and my question is not, okay, so physicians can avoid them, but maybe there's ways to tailor your approach to those people. So, Colin, you know, life is a bell-shaped curve. And when we think about uh, physicians, our data shows very clearly that there's a bell-shaped curve. When we look, about, look at patients and families, they're a bell-shaped curve. And there are individuals that walk in the door ready to complain. There are individuals that walk in the door will never complain under any circumstance. There are individuals that walk in the door demanding things. There are others that walk in the door and they want key to tell me what I need and everything in between. So the first thing I want to do is remind all of my physician colleagues that patients are unique. We're unique. They're unique. And so each individual is an opportunity to engage, number one. The second issue that I think is uh, really important is to recognize that there are certain individuals from a litigation standpoint, and th- those, those data are clear, that are more likely to file suit. But the effect is statistically significant, but probably not so meaningful. But individuals who are most likely to file suit are those individuals that are highly educated and empowered. They have expectations, and those expectations are not met, and they represent often lost income or other reasons that make them more attractive to attorneys. And remember again that the representatives of the plaintiff bar send away far more individuals that knock on their door than they accept. There's a screening mechanism and it's not necessarily for the public good, it is just as it occurs. So in those senses, those are individuals that are much more likely to be litigious. but. The fundamental philosophy of our program is that we want professionals to be professional to everyone. And that includes individuals that are easy to work with and those that are not. And so I think when the clinician walks in the door, I often observed as a pediatrician that uh, there were physicians that were observant and those that are not. How often you walked into an exam room and you recognized that there was a disturbance in the force. You might not understand why. And there are those clinicians that then seek to engage by their communication skills to identify the fact that there is a grandmother at home that's going to demand antibiotics or individuals that can be oblivious to that and then don't understand why people then become unhappy when the outcomes don't meet their expectations. 
So I think this whole notion is if we could teach individuals to be observant, constantly aware, understanding that there may be hidden agenda, exploring in an efficient, time-sensitive way. Those are the individuals that don't get complaints and don't get lawsuits. And so remember, 2 to 8% get more than their fair share. Large numbers get none ever. And the other issue that I remind people to do is reject the myths of litigation. My patients are sicker. Everybody in my field gets sued. And since I'm here in Nashville, that old great country music uh, song, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Those things are not true, and they distract. So that's the other thing, Colin, that I would encourage people to uh, reject those myths. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and we'll probably try to find a few things to add to the show notes to um, to explore that a little deeper for those who are interested. Yeah, that's a, a great line to end on. But uh, a practical question, if you're in a a smaller institution or a large group uh, or even a small group and it's the kind of thing that you think that there may be some risk how would you set a program like this up what would not necessarily tell us how to do it now but where would somebody look online how would they contact you or contact somebody to try to get this set up on a practical standpoint Keith, we did a paper a few years ago in one of the Joint Commission publications that sort of articulated the eight essential elements for setting up an infrastructure to do this, even if your practice, even if you're just simply going to write things down on a piece of paper and put them in a file folder. But those things briefly relate to having the right people, process, and technology. You've got to have an infrastructure. And it begins by getting the practice members to sit down, look at each other, eyeball to eyeball and ask, how are we doing? And are we sure? And if individuals would take that particular position and then follow some common sense approaches to service recovery, they're miles ahead. Well, Jerry, just to wrap things up, a question we started doing recently, tell us briefly just about a patient from your past who's either changed your perspective, made an impact on you, or otherwise stayed, stayed in your mind these years. You know, Colin, that's a great question, and uh, one of the biggest education moments I ever had was actually with my dad, not my patient, but he was a patient in a hospital. Uh, I was sitting writing a paper one day at my desk. Uh, and my dad called. He was 82 at the time, and he said he was having the worst heartburn he'd ever had, and he was getting ready to go to the golf course, and I said, Dad, uh, you're not going to the golf course today. Uh, turned out that he had an MI, and uh, I went to uh, stay there with him in the hospital at the city where he lived and s- stayed day in and day out. He did all right, had some arrhythmias, uh, but I went to their home to spend the night, catch a little sleep. He was going to be discharged the next day, but I walked in on that Saturday, uh, and Dad looked terrible. said he felt bad, was cold didn't have any strength. And about that time, the nursing professional came in and I'm sitting there, I'm in t-shirt and shorts. I don't tell anybody that I'm a physician and have nothing to do with safety and quality. And I just sat there and observed, but I observed her take that blood pressure three times. And that was a clue. And at that particular point, I said, well, how's my dad's blood pressure? She said, well, it's a little low. I said, I'd like to know the numbers. And she said, well, uh, he's 78 over 34 or something of that nature. So as a pediatrician, I still am not going to be happy with that with a newborn. And so uh, I said, well, you know, what's the plan? Now that was about nine in the morning. And she responded that his cardiologist usually got in about noon on Saturdays. And I said, well, you know, could we escalate that time frame just a little bit? And it was clear in retrospect that she was frightened about the notion of doing that. And it goes back to reinforcing these principles of this study. Turned out my dad had an Addisonian crisis. She was hesitant to call. I had to insist. He came roaring in about 30 minutes later, very unhappy with who had disrupted his schedule. At which point I repeated to him three times what father's blood pressure was, at which point he got focused. What that taught me 
is how often we just go through our routines. And back to the points that you've raised earlier, we don't think about how people see us or perceive us. Those things become barriers to good care. And father could have had a problem, but he's got a son sitting there who's going to advocate. But how often patients and families don't have someone there to advocate. So, Colin, that's a lesson that I've learned. And I've learned, I hope, to listen a little better and not be so rigid. It is a great lesson. Thank you for sharing that with us, Jerry. We really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing everything with us today. I, Keith, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I thought this was a, a great interview. We're going to get this paper up online, and we're going to put a lot of other resources for those who are interested in digging a little deeper here. But, um, Jerry, th- thank you again for joining us. It was it was a pleasure to have you today. Colin, my pleasure, Keith. I uh, hope you feel better soon, and, uh, you know, uh, may the force be with you. <laughs> Everybody take care. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin on Pure Spectrum. We'll see you here next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. We support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at purespectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at purespectrum.com.